So Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Son or the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Word of God. You guys can have a seat. So the the major theme is doubt. We're talking about doubt and we're seeing pictures Um, little sections or pericopes of different people or groups (coughs) who are doubting the Messiah, Jesus, doubting His miracles, doubting John the Baptist who came to proclaim and to prepare the way for the Messiah. We're seeing these different stories and we've we've said several times that we're going to see the extremes of just simple questioning, like John, to... Hostile opposition, people who want Jesus dead. In chapter 11, John the Baptist questioned. Jesus has answered his question by saying, look at my miracles. He has come to the defense of John. Among all who would have been around to hear John's question, he comes to defend John. He points to John's amazing ministry and the importance of the ministry of John And then he goes on the offensive towards those who would challenge John, who would challenge Jesus as the Messiah. He goes on the offensive that led and climaxed to what we saw last week, this scathing rebuke of these cities and towns that although Jesus had performed most of His miracles there, they failed to repent. They they wouldn't turn. They wouldn't believe in Him as the Messiah. So Jesus begins to rebuke them, Matthew says, because they did not repent. So, and he pronounces these woes, these, um, these curses, these promises of, 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 of doom and, and condemnation that's going to come on these cities because they did not repent. Now, put yourself in this mindset of, of, of Matthew chapter 11, and we can say Matthew um, 5 through 11, this time period. In these cities um, where most of his mighty works had been done, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, think like you're a person from there. And you've seen Jesus, this man who shows up, who begins preaching a message with authority, and then a leper comes out of nowhere and he touches the leper, skin covered in a disease, filthy, rags, stinking, rotting flesh. He touches him and he's just clean in a moment. He's, he's, he's fixed in an instant. Or you see 
the centurion asking for, for help for his servant. And then you hear later that the, the centurion's servant was healed. And Jesus didn't even go to his house. He just said, he's healed. And it actually happened. You, you hear this story. Or you hear of Jesus going home and healing Peter's mother-in-law and then maybe someone you know or you that evening, that Sabbath evening, you went to where Jesus was staying in Capernaum and you were sick or a loved one was sick and He was healing everybody. People possessed with demons, He would just cast them out with a word. He healed, it said, all who were sick. That's either everybody or almost everybody, a lot of people. They're just fixed in, a, in, a, in an instant with a word. Or maybe you hear about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. You knew storms. You knew the Sea of Galilee. You would know that it's dangerous to go out on these boats. And the fishermen would always talk about the raging storms. And then you hear this story where there was a storm and Jesus just made it stop in an instant. He, he fixed it. Or you hear about those two demon-possessed men who, would, who lived in the graveyard. And everybody was afraid to go that way. And when Jesus showed up, he, he just cast the demons out into a herd of pigs and they were fixed. They were back to normal. The pigs died and people kind of got upset probably, but the men were better. Or the paralytic that, you know, you hear the story, man, they, they lowered him down through the roof and Jesus forgave his sins or, or said he did. And then all of a sudden, he told him to get up and walk away and he did. He was paralyzed and then he got up and picked up his mat and walked out. Just in, in a moment. Or this woman with the issue of blood is fixed. Jairus' daughter is dead and then she's alive. Um, two blind men received their sight. They couldn't see and then they could see. Um, a man who could not speak, all of a sudden he can speak. And, and this is just the miracles that are specifically laid out. I and mean, we've read several times uh, at the, the end of chapter 4, he went throughout all the region performing these miracles. And we read again later that he was going throughout this region performing. So, so these are just specific examples done, but we know that there were many more. He's just every day, he gets up, he's going out, he's performing these miracles, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing people. It's not secret, it's not hidden. Everybody knows it. Nobody ever challenged the validity of his miracles. Nobody ever said, you can't really do miracles. The only out they had was to just give the, the, ascribe the authority, the power to Satan. But they never said, you're not really doing it. In plain sight, he's doing all of these things. So why didn't they repent? They could see it. They saw him do it with their own eyes and they would not repent. They wouldn't, wouldn't believe it. Now, in our day, and I would think it would be the same in their day, the human tendency is to be led astray by a fake miracle or a fake magic trick or, or a sleight of hand. Our tendency is to be tricked and to believe something that's not true. Our tendency is not typically to see something with our own eyes and not believe it and, and, and not continue or, or not you know, do whatever he says or, or, or follow this man who's teaching and doing these things. That's not typically our tendency. We usually go the other way. We'll follow anybody. Anybody who does a magic trick. Anybody who seems to have uh, 
authority or seems to have power in their teaching or seems to encourage people or seems to be a, an entrepreneurial leader will we'll follow them and later we have to look back and say, I was following a, you know, I shouldn't have been following that person. I was, I was tricked. I was duped. These people had seen with their own eyes all these miracles and their response was, was not the typical response. Their response was, well, we want to see more. We're going to have to see more. Keep, just keep doing it. But they, they would not repent. So, so the question is, why, after seeing all of these miracles in plain sight, right before their eyes, healing, hearing the stories, maybe even being healed themselves, why would they not just repent? Just repent, just do what this man says, but they, they simply would not do it. We read, they were condemned. He denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they would not repent. That's why they were condemned, because they would not repent. It doesn't make any sense. This doesn't follow human nature that they simply, they just wouldn't do what this man said. They wouldn't repent. And so, the question is, why not? Why would they not repent? And today, Jesus answers that question. We ask, why would they would not repent? Jesus is going to give us the answer with some of the, the deepest, hardest truths in Scripture. This is major league theology. These truths will either undergird everything you believe and make you strong in your faith, or they will make you angry, and they will make you turn, and eventually you will you'll walk away. This is, this is deep stuff. This is hard stuff. So, as we move into this section, let's be humble and let's allow the Word of God to, to change our mindset and how we think God, Jesus, should act. And what I want to do is kind of outline verses 25 and 26. Jesus makes a declaration. And we're going to look at the context of the declaration, the purpose of for the declaration, the title used in the declaration, and then the cause for praise in this declaration that Jesus uh, pronounces here in verses 25 and 26. So first, the context of the declaration. It, let's just set the stage. Verse 25 begins, At that time, Jesus declared. Now in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, Luke states the return of the 72 that Jesus had sent out. They return, and then Jesus makes this declaration. Now, Matthew doesn't mention the sending out of the 72. Um, he just puts this declaration immediately after the woes to these unrepentant cities. So, think uh, as a, a reader reading Matthew's Gospel. You, and, and you're more than likely Jewish. You're either a Jewish convert who Matthew's trying to strengthen in your faith, or you're unconverted, and you're just reading. Maybe a friend has given you a copy of this, or a friend is reading it to you. And so you're a Jewish person, and you're reading, and immediately after the rebuke of these cities that had rejected Jesus, immediately after, he said, they would not repent. He goes into this. He says, he makes this declaration. And... The way Matthew has this set up, it's almost as if 
Matthew is trying, his, his intent is to take this stake of truth and just drive it into the heart of his Jewish readers, his Jewish audience. Because they had just read, Tyre and Sidon are going to fare better in the judgment than Chorazin, than Bethsaida, than Capernaum. Really? Sodom is going to fare better than Capernaum. Really? You want me to believe Jesus said that? They've just heard this. And we get the sense that Matthew is really just trying to stir their affections, just get down in the wound and just aggravate their hearts to, to make them almost, almost aggravate them, make, them um, make it hard for them to, to come to terms with what is actually being said. In chapter 3, Matthew had recorded the words of John. John says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What he's saying is, don't think that because you're a Jew, you have any claim to salvation. God can make Jews out of rocks. That means nothing. And so here, it's like he's driving that same point. You need to understand, Jews, that your Jewishness means nothing. These Jewish cities where Jesus had been, they didn't repent. And therefore, they are condemned. They are cursed. And so, it's possible that, that historically, or even just in the intent of Matthew, he's placed this here to aggravate the minds and the heart wounds of, of his Jewish readers. And so, Matthew records this declaration. Jesus declared, he says... In, in the King James Version, it's, it's written, He answered and said. This is He stated publicly. He's saying this out loud. So all those who were there, the, the crowd that day, they would have heard what Jesus says. Now, keep that in mind that everybody can hear this. This is not secret. So as we study this truth, remember, everybody can hear it. This is not just for the, the, the really deep, followers of Jesus. He doesn't whisper this in their ear and say, but, but keep that on the down low because it might offend some people if this gets out. No, he, he states it in front of all who would hear. He's not sugarcoating his theology. Like I said, as a matter of fact, it seems like he's saying exactly what someone would say when they're trying to make people upset. So that's the context of this declaration. And then we, we see the purpose of of this declaration. We answered the question, why is Jesus speaking here? Why is He saying what He's saying? He didn't have to say anything, so, so He is. What's He saying? Why is He saying this? Well, He says, first words, I thank you. Or this could be literally, I praise you. In Luke's Gospel, He records it, that He, he says, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and then said this, so Jesus is publicly praising. He's, he's calling attention to the glory of God and the goodness of His Father. He's expressing His delight in the Father. In so many words, Jesus is publicly worshiping the Father. Out loud, where everybody can hear it. So He's publicly worshiping God the Father in the sight of all who could see, in, in, in the earshot of all who were around they would have heard this. His, his goal is to worship 
the Father. He takes this opportunity to publicly praise the Father and draw attention to the Father's works. That's why He's doing this. That's His purpose. I thank You. I praise You, Father. And notice next the title of this declaration or the title used in this declaration. And this is important. This is, this is a very big deal in, in what Jesus is saying. And so I want to make sure that we, we, we focus here on this title. And I've broken it down into two sections aptly named part one and part two. He says, I thank you, Father, first. So Jesus draws attention to His intimate relationship with God the Father. Remember when we studied the Lord's Prayer, the beginning of the address is our Father. And we talked about how that's intimate, that's close. This relationship that we have our, with our fathers, it's personal, it's familial. Now the Jews would have understood God as Father of the nation, but as far as an individual Jew saying God is, is my Father and I'm intimately related to Him, they, they probably wouldn't have really grasped that concept. And so Jesus makes very clear His own very special relationship with God the Father, and that's going to come back into play next week, and we're going to see exactly why Jesus wants to draw attention to this relationship. So He calls Him Father. And then secondly, Lord of heaven and earth. Very important. Very, very important to what we're about to learn. Lord. We should know this word by now. In the Greek, kurios. Master. Owner. Ruler. Sovereign. Superior. King. The one with all the authority. That's Lord. Of heaven and earth. So Jesus has just moved from Father, intimate and close, to Lord of heaven and earth, all things. Again, right back to what we learned in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, closeness, intimacy, who is in heaven, transcendence, vast God. Lord of heaven and earth. Now the Jews would have recognized this title for Yahweh, the God of all things, the, the Creator of heaven and the earth. They would have known that. He's the Lord of heaven. That is the skies and all that is in them. Meteorites and planets and stars and galaxies and solar systems and, and, and just billions and billions and billions of stars. He's Lord over that. He's master, ruler, owner. The one with all the authority over all of that. He's the Lord of heaven. But He's also the Lord of earth. That's everything that doesn't exist in the skies and within creation. That's dust, that's rocks, that's giraffes, that's people, that's trees, plants, clouds, that's everything. He's Lord of the earth. He, he's the ruler over it all. He's sovereign over it all. He has the authority over it all. He owns it. It's His so Jesus addresses God as His Father, intimate, close, but also as transcendent Master, Ruler, Sovereign over everything. Get that. He rules over everything. It's all His. It would not exist if He would not have spoken it into existence. It's His. 
This is the best explanation of the very first phrase, Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. With no qualifiers. Not, there's no time frame. It's not the Lord used to reign or the Lord will reign. It's, he just reigns. He just, from, from eternity past to eternity future, He reigns, period. No, no time, no, no boundaries, no borders. Not He reigns over there, or He reigns here, or He reigns in space, or He reigns on earth. It's just He reigns, period. He is at the top. He is superior over all. The Lord reigns, it says in Psalm. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. That's the title. Don't forget that. God hasn't changed. For us, He is still Lord of heaven and earth. And then we see the cause for praise in this declaration. We ask the question, why is Jesus praising His Father, Lord of heaven and earth? What has caused Him to, to praise? And the answer, it says, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that, or because, You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You have hidden these things. We know Jesus is, is in prayer. He's speaking to His Father. He's speaking to God the Father. So God the Father is being praised. God the Father is being thanked. God the Father is the one who is being attributed with the action. God the Father is active here. He's the one in control, working to the end that you, Father, have hidden. That's literally exactly what it says. To, to hide. To conceal. To make secret. To make invisible. So God the Father, you, have hidden. He, he has made it such that the subject matter, what we're about to talk about, is invisible. It's secret. It can't be seen. It's, it's hidden. You have hidden these things. Now this is where we, we kind of have to dig in a little bit. Because what are these things? He doesn't say, he just says, these things. Well, if we ask ourselves, what has just happened? What is, the, what is the subject matter that has been placed on the table that Jesus is addressing? Well, he just scolded these cities who have rejected him. They didn't repent, so he scolds them. They did not accept his Miracles, they did not accept His disciples and, and their preaching and their teaching and their miracles. And remember, the miracles were, John would call them signs. They were things that pointed to something greater. So these, these signs and these wonders, these miracles come and they're displaying the glory of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom. They're preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are all what we've described over the past uh, several weeks. These are all... Gospel graces. The subject matter on the table is the acceptance and rejection of the witness of Christ and His followers as sent from God and their message and their works as commissioned by God. They've rejected these gospel graces, these things that have been done and said in plain sight as means of grace. God has reached down and He's given them these things in front of their eyes. These gospel graces, these means of grace, signs of the kingdom, these things God has hidden. 
So in other words, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord, Ruler, Master, Owner, Sovereign over all things because you have taken these things that we're discussing. You've taken these things, all these things that so very clearly display the glory of the Messiah and so very clearly display the glory of the kingdom, the obvious necessity of repentance, all the glory of, of me, the Messiah, Jesus. You've taken all these things that, have, that would have been so effective in Tyre. They would have been so effective in Sidon. They would have been so effective in Sodom. You've taken them, and although they've been performed in plain sight, you have hidden their true meaning, made them invisible to certain people where well, they couldn't see. They, they could not, literally, they, they were not able to see what it meant. You have hidden these things. Well, from whom has He hidden these things? It says, from the wise and understanding. Now, wise here is, is kind of a, a just knowledge, intelligence. It's oftentimes used to describe the learnings of the religious people. Understanding is more so shrewdness, uh, life application, prudence. For our purposes, we could distinguish between the two by saying um, book smarts and street smarts. To be understanding is to know how to apply your book smarts in, in everyday life. These types of people, wise and understanding, were people who by all outward appearances were completely self-sufficient in everything. They, they didn't need any help. They knew everything. They even knew how to put it into action in their lives. And God had taken these things, these gospel truths, these gospel graces, means of grace, clear signs of the kingdom, and He had hidden them from the plain sight of the ones who we would have assumed would have been the first ones to come. If we would have had to pick, is it going to be the Jews of Capernaum, where Jesus lived, or the pagans of Tyre and Sidon? Who's going to come first? We would say, well, of course it's going to be the Jews. They've been looking for the Messiah forever. Jesus says, nah. Tyre and Sidon would have come before you because these things have been hidden. Now, what's the point? What's the, the doctrine here that we need to get to? When it comes to spiritual truths and the things that are necessary for salvation... The natural man, the natural person, that is the person apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit, no matter how wise or how prudent, how much book reading, how much street smarts they have, the, the, the natural person can never ascend to these truths naturally. They have been hidden. The they are unavailable to the natural man. They, they are invisible. They can't see them. This includes the nature of our sin, the nature of our depravity, the glory of Christ as our Savior, the necessity of repentance, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, our need for salvation and reconciliation with God, all these, these things that are necessary for salvation. These, these truths of the Gospel are completely hidden to a person who is not yet born again. They cannot see them. They're blind. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 2, verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And then in verse 10, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Listen to this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're foolish. They're idiotic. They're moronic. They're stupid to a natural person. And he is not able. Not he won't. Not he, 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 he's not allowed. He's not able. He cannot. It's, it's not in his ability to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person cannot grasp any spiritual aspect of the Gospel whatsoever. The truths of the Gospel, Paul says, are only discernible by the Holy Spirit. And those to whom the Holy Spirit reveals them, or those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now most people will agree with that, but here's the kicker. Here's what sets this church apart from most churches in our area. This is the theology that, sets, that, that, that makes us distinct. No person will ever respond to the gospel with faith in God, or repentance toward God and, and faith in Jesus ever. Because in their natural condition, they do not understand that they need it. See, if they don't know that they need it, they're not going to make a step. We never make any choices without understanding that we need to make a choice. I'm not going to buy any food if I don't know that I'm hungry. I'm not going to go to the store if I don't know that that's where the food is. If, if there's no motivation, no choice is made, no action is taken. There's always a motivation behind everything that we do. And the natural person does not understand that they need a Savior. They don't know it. Lost people, they don't know that they need a Savior. So they're never going to respond to the Gospel with repentance toward God and faith in Jesus. The natural unsaved person will never come to God. Therefore, for a person to respond with faith, with repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, they have to first know that they're sinners. They have to know that they need to be saved. They have to understand, I am a sinner, unable to save myself. I need a Savior. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Therefore, I will trust in Him. They have to understand that first. And they will not realize that they're sinners. 
They will not realize that Jesus is a Savior, the Savior, without the Holy Spirit revealing that to them because that's spiritual truth. The Holy Spirit has to reveal that to you. Without the Holy Spirit giving them spiritual life from the dead, raising them to life to be able to see the truth, they'll never see it. We call this the rebirth or the new birth, being born again. So the Holy Spirit must indwell a person, the sinner, give them new life, open their eyes to the gospel, the truths of the gospel, so that they may then, by an act of their own volition, motivated by the Holy Spirit, respond in faith and repentance. Now most people would say, you trust in Jesus, then you're born again. You put your faith in God and the Holy Spirit then comes in. The Bible teaches the Holy Spirit comes in, causes you to believe in God. Because without the Holy Spirit, you don't know that you need God. You don't know that you need a Savior. You don't know that you're a sinner. This is the difference between the Reformed tradition and classic Arminianism. We believe that the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, precedes faith. It comes first. The Holy Spirit comes in, gives you life, opens your eyes, you see, I'm a sinner, He's a Savior, and you trust. And that faith is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man, no man may boast. So in other words, God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners, not the sinner. Or, to put it another way, the Lord reigns over all things. And this is from the mouth of Jesus. This is not some theologian just spouting off what he thinks, his philosophy. This is from the mouth of Jesus. God has hidden them. They can't see it. So the Father has hidden these truths from these. And, and, and let's not think that it's as though if He wouldn't have hidden them, well, they would have seen because we're all dead in trespasses and sins. We're not going to see naturally. We're all that way, blind and dead. And God's work in hiding is not the same as His action in revealing. He doesn't have to do anything to make us sinful. We're born that way. That's natural. God has to act to bring us back to life. He chooses to reveal Himself. So Jesus says, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. But then He goes on, and revealed them to little children. These same things. Gospel graces, gospel truth. The depravity of the sinner. The need for a Savior. God reveals these things. The word reveal is where we get our word Apocalypse. Apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world. Apocalypse means revelation, revealing something that was hidden. So he's revealed these things. These things that were hidden, he's revealed them to little children. Again, this is not kids necessarily. This is those who are dependent, those who are humble, those who are disciples, learners, meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who will, will remain humiliated before Christ. God in His sovereignty 
had revealed the good news of the kingdom to those who were humble and lowly. So the good news we read in this passage is that there were some who had believed. The Jewish people are not completely written off. If they repented and believed in Jesus, they were saved, just like us. So the disciples had gone into these towns, and it seems that the ones who would have repented didn't repent, and they were judged and they were condemned. Others, who seemed like the most unlikely candidates, lowly, maybe not quite as smart, not quite as intelligent, not learned people of the law, those people were coming in the droves to, to, to worship Jesus and repent and believe. 1 Corinthians 1 is always a good heart check. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Our God reigns. We do not. Now typically, this type of doctrine, we say, well, that's not fair. That's not just of God to hide it from some and reveal it to others. That's not fair of God to hide it from my brother and reveal it to my co-worker. To hide it from my, my mom and, and reveal it to my son. That's not fair that He would do that. We ask, well, how could a loving God, why would a loving God hide His truth from someone? And reveal it to others and still be fair. Number one, if you want fair, we all go to hell right now because that's fair. That's justice. It will be served if that's what we want. I don't think that's what we want. We don't want fair. Secondly, Jesus answers in the next verse why He would do this. Verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. He says, for, that lets us know He's about to tell us why God would act this way. Why God would do this. Answer to our question, God, why would You hide Your truth from anybody? Why would you ever do that? You know that that means condemnation. Why would you do it? Such was your gracious will. King James Version says, For so it seemed good in thy sight. In other words, because it made you happy. Because it was your delight, your good pleasure to do this. Psalm 115.3, my favorite verse. In Scripture, I think, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Can God do all things? Yes, God can do all His holy will. He does what He pleases. So the answer is, how could a loving God do this? The answer, because He delights. And remember Jesus, Luke said He's rejoicing in the Spirit. The Son takes delight in the same thing the Father does. They are delighting together. Now, 
What, what do we pull out of this for us now? What can we take home? First thing is we need to recognize and acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Recognize and acknowledge the sovereignty of God. See, th this is stuff that people have been arguing over for hundreds of years. It's not something to be argued. It's something to be embraced. Don't, don't, don't argue. Love it. Embrace it. See, our human will, our human depravity, wants to have the final say in salvation. We want to say, well, it, it was kind of up to me. I mean, God, you know, He was there and, you know, He sent His Son to die on the cross, but, you know, but I had to choose. Well, yeah, you did. Only after He gave you life to see. But we want so badly to have the final say. We want so badly to say, well, ultimately it's up to me. It's not. The Lord reigns. He does all that He pleases. Secondly, worship. God for His sovereignty. Worship Him. In this section of Scripture, Jesus publicly praises the Father. He takes the opportunity with all these people around to worship His Father for His sovereignty in the hiding and the revealing of truth. Now, our tendency is to kick back against the sovereignty of God. Well, no, that's not it. I mean, yeah, God's sovereign, but, but only up till, till you know, man's response. God's sovereignty can't override man's free will. Yes, it can. The Lord reigns, not the man reigns. He does what He pleases. Don't fight against it. Worship Him for it. Praise God that He does whatever He pleases and He saved you. Worship Him. Praise God that He would reveal these truths to us. Praise God that He would overcome your rebellion and say, just like the Apostle Paul when he was Saul, that's it, you're done, you're working for me now, stop. You're done. Get off your horse, you're done. You're mine now. That's what He's done. If you're a Christian, to every single person in this room, He overcame your rebellion. He said, you're mine now. And He said, you worship Him for that. Praise God that your salvation is not in your feeble human hands to try to hold on to. That you can go to sleep at night knowing that when you wake up in the morning, you will still be saved. You'll still be a Christian. The Holy Spirit will still be inside of you and you, you dreamed about who knows what while you're sleeping. You're not thinking about your salvation. It's, 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 a, it's an opportunity for worship. Jesus Rejoice in the Holy Spirit. We should delight. We should rejoice in a God who is sovereign. One quote, I don't remember who said it, said that God's favorite attribute of Himself is His sovereignty. And if you were God, you would, that would be your favorite too. It's a good thing to worship God, to praise Him. And the third thing, um, just to try to steer this toward leaving as you are going, Take courage in God's sovereignty as you are going. These truths are not natural to us. They're not easy for us to, to, to relinquish our hold on ourselves or, or our eternal destiny. They're not easy, but when we finally submit and understand the Bible's cover-to-cover -cover teaching of the absolute sovereignty of God, it sets you free because then you can read, well, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not my words, not my abilities, 
Not my breath. It's the power of God. The Gospel is the power of God. So, if the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and the Gospel, or, or, or God is in control of hiding and revealing His truth, then we just share the Gospel. We just be faithful in sharing the Gospel. You just get it out in a loving and, and caring way. Try, try to persuade people. Converse with them. Care for them. But share the Gospel. Just be obedient. He takes care of the rest. We can't save people. We can't convince people. The natural person will not respond rightly. God has to do a work first. So, why didn't Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum repent? Because God had hidden the truth. They couldn't see it. They didn't know. Well, why were they condemned then? Because they didn't repent. How can it be fair that they would suffer in eternal punishment forever? How can God still find fault in people when it was His will to hide it from them? Paul asked the same question, or... or um, rhetorically proposes this question in Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If the questions that you have are asked in Scripture, we would do well to pay attention to the answer that's given. What he's saying is, the common person would ask, why would God fault someone if it's his doing? If it's, if it's his will that it's hidden? And the answer he gives, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. In other words, first of all, you don't get to ask questions like that. You're clay, He's the potter. He does what He wants. Secondly, God is displaying His wrath in order to show His riches and His mercy and His grace to those of us who are saved so that for all eternity we will praise Him for His glorious grace. And at the end of that section, Paul closes with this. This is the only way to respond when you hear these truths of the sovereignty of God. All the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.